Michael Mahaney from the Potter Do Podcast. Do you crave the latest breaking dance news? Or maybe you want that behind-the-scenes story of Broadway's biggest dance hit? Or the insider scoop from television's most watched dance competitions? Well, the answer is simple. Dance Network. For the price of your daily coffee, you can have complete access to the best dance news reporting, insider stories, original series, interviews, and more. For $6.99 a month, you get exclusive content, live stream competitions, the latest from the commercial dance world where you'll hear from the casts of Dancing with the Stars and So You Think You Can Dance. And you get behind-the-scenes coverage from the best-sourced dance news reporters in the business. On top of it all, though, your subscription helps Dance Network keep creating the best dance content available anywhere. So pick up your subscription today. Available at dancenetwork.tv and now in the Roku Channel Store. Welcome back to another episode of Potado listeners. I'm your host, Clara. And I'm your host, Jessica. And today we're interviewing Megan Williams, who is an independent dance artist, choreographer, and in-demand teacher and repetiteur. Her choreography has been produced throughout the United States. In addition to performing her own work, Megan can be seen dancing with choreographer Rebecca Sten and in Netta Yerushalmi's Paramodernities Project. In 1988, she joined the Mark Morris Dance Group and danced for 10 years, touring worldwide, teaching, and appearing in several films, including Falling Downstairs with Yo-Yo Ma, The Hidden Soul of Harmony, The Hard Nut, and Dido and Aeneas. Her dancing with MMDG was named an unusual blend of delicate precision and sensuous fluency with considerable strength and profound musicality. That's from Toby Tobias for New York Magazine. Williams continues her affiliation with Morris even today as guest ballet master, guest rehearsal director, and as a stager of his works. Her latest work, Can I Have It Without Begging, is an intergenerational live music and dance collaboration between Megan and an award-winning composer, Eve Biglarian. That will have its world premiere at Dance Space Project March 26th through 28th, so coming right up in New York City. Thank you so much for being here today, Megan. Oh, thanks for having me. So we always start at the beginning, and we like to ask our guests, how did you get into dance, and what was it like dancing for Mark Morris Dance Group, and how did that progression happen? Well, I, I, like a lot of people, I started dancing when I was fairly small, when my mother enrolled me into creative movement classes. I was growing up in Los Angeles, and... Then I took some ballet classes, and I think I was a bit of a a rambunctious girl and found ballet a little too staid and static and stopped doing it. And then started, picked up dancing again in junior high school, or I guess you call it middle school now, and was singing and acting and doing other things that were theatrical. And I happened to go to a school in L.A. that had a really good arts program. It wasn't an art school, but... I actually started taking some modern dance classes then. And then I moved to Toronto to go to high school. And being an an uprooted teenager, the one thing I knew I could do without any friends was go to a dance class. So my mother enrolled me in a a summer session in Toronto, and one thing led to the other, and then I was dancing every day and finished high school, also doing theater and doing music-related things. And then someone saw me performing with this teen jazz company that I was in in Toronto Ooh, one fun. summer. Yeah, it was was super fun and kind of my first semi-professional performing experience. And someone who was in a company here in New York saw me dancing and said, what are you going to do after high school? And I wasn't sure. And he said, you should go to the Juilliard School. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and this is, you know, of course, in the late 70s. And my mother did want me to go to college. And I was thinking I was just going to move to New York and be a dancer. I had sort of a slightly delusional pie in the sky kind of feeling about it as a teen. Anyway, I went to Ju- I auditioned for Juilliard and I got into Juilliard. So that's that's how that worked out. And then I moved to New York, etc. Juilliard and lots of connections and lots of amazing dance experiences. Um, four years post bachelor's degree freelancing in the city like most people right out of college and I danced that's when I danced with Ohad Naharin's company that was based in New York for almost four years I danced with him and got to travel abroad which was great and this was before he went back and 
took over Botsheva. All right. Mm. I danced with a woman named Laura Glenn, who had been a Limon dancer, and she had a company with her husband at the time, Who and we traveled a lot. There was a lot of, of subsidy and support for small dance companies in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And if you read sort of your dance history, some will say it was kind of a boom for dance in New York. Like there was a lot of support, financial support. So even though I still had other support jobs, I was an aerobics teacher, I was a personal trainer, I did a lot of things that were all movement-related, but I was dancing and performing a lot and contemplating going to graduate school around that time. And then I went to a couple of auditions in one week and I got both jobs and one of them was the Mark Morris Dance Group job. That's great. Which was hiring people to move to Brussels for three years. Hmm. So you did that? So that's what I did. So my first three years with Mark were in Belgium. Wow. Yeah, which was a trip. That's where all these big productions that you listed in my bio were actually made were because he had government subsidy there. So that's my dance with Mark. So then hmm. I, I did, then we moved back in 1991. That was in 1988. And he didn't have the big building that he has now. He didn't have the infrastructure. He had a company with a manager and a maybe two managers, some administrative staff. But we hopped around from space to space. We rehearsed at Perry Dance. We rehearsed at ABT when they were out of town. You know, we just, we just were pickup in terms of having a home. And it wasn't until I left the company that the plan for the big building that he has in Brooklyn now and the sort of what we, the Mark Morris Industries thing kind of developed. Well, um, it's fairly recent, right? That well, building? it's about, it's not that recent now. It's probably 15 years. Oh, okay. Th- yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, that, that he's sounds had right. the building, yeah. Um, so I left Mark's company and came back a couple times, but to have my first child. So I wanted to have a baby, and I tried taking a baby on the road, and it wasn't for me. And it works. It's worked out for a lot of his dancers, actually. Really? To, to come back. Oh yeah, there's bring, people in the company right now who have kids, and they bring them with uh, mm-hmm. as they tour. Sometimes, yeah. Even as babies. I mean, there has to be. I think it's each situation is very unique. You know, you have you have to have a support system. You either have a life partner who can stay home with the baby, or who can go on tour with you, or you have a parent, you know, a grandparent that to the baby that can come on tour. That wasn't quite my setup. So even though I tried bringing a baby on tour once, I came back about, you know, a year after I'd had him, my first child. It just didn't, it just didn't feel right. So, so at that point, I, I, you know, decided to move forward into raising a family and being, and sort of cultivating my teaching career and eventually my choreographic career. But the time with Mark was amazing. I mean, we were on tour about six months out of the year. We were in festivals all over the, the world. Um, you know, I got to perform at Lincoln Center. I got to perform at BAM. I got to perform on, you know, on big stages with live orchestras and singers and, and be part of what his sort of thing became, you know, still part, sort of part of it. I wasn't in the original, original company. I was kind of in the next generation that overlapped with those original people. So yeah. I'm part of the story. Right. What a great legacy to be a part of. Yeah, it's yeah. great. You know, and it's, he's a living person, so he's still making work. And so I stage his work. I was one of, a, you know, a handful of people from my generation that he, he sort of deemed me step police. Like I was that kind of bossy personality in the studio, mm-hmm. which, which bugged the heck out of him, but also <laughs> was the person who did the did the thing and he trusted me to teach to other people yeah so that makes I've, for a great rehearsal director yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so I've come back to to like bring back old rep and on the current company sometimes I come back to do that but some other my co- the alum do that but at least once a year I get a gig with from Mark like somehow I get an email that says would you like to stage this piece on this college or I mean next year I have a really cool one it's actually this year now it's in the fall I'm going to London to restage the the central dances in Nixon in China, which this is this big opera, John mm. Adams opera, that premiered back in the eighties, and it's being restaged in its original form at the English National Opera. So I have like a five week job in London because of Mark. So I get wow. I get these gigs. That's you so know, fun. Last year I taught a piece at Cal State Long Beach to students there, and I've set pieces on Juilliard and Purchase and Vassar and where else a bunch of colleges on the east coast but also yeah anyway 
I love London. You're lucky. London's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, it's going to be fun. City. Oh, it's like going to be a weird time. October, November, we'll see. My, I have um, lots of family in England, so I get to spend a little time there. But the, really? the, the Mark Morris Dance Group is sort of the, it's the gift that keeps giving in a way. You know, I keep, I get work through him. But I don't have to be connected to him all the time, which yeah. is good too. Now, <laughs> are you staging works that you were you not did, always, or not new always? Ones? Like so, yeah. The Nixon in China, I've ne- I never danced that. Huh? It's, so how do you do? You just does I, he teach it to you? I have video out? archives. There's notes from the original assistant from Mark's notes, and wow. then I'll work with him a little bit. He and I are going to go to London in August to audition dancers because they're all going to be dance auditioned there. Okay. Mm-hmm. The piece I just did at Long Beach last year was a piece that I did dance, so I knew it well, and I was, and I like when I get to stage something that I was in, that I was in the original of, you know, because mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. sort of oral tradition stories to share with oh, students, and particularly with college students, for them to understand this isn't just on this count, and this isn't like why, what was the thing he was thinking about when he made this? That's that's fun to pass on. Right. right. But I'm also one of the people, the few people that stage his ballets and I've never been in those so he made pieces on San Francisco Ballet and the Houston Ballet and ABT and other big ballet companies and then other ballet companies want them so Mm. I've worked with the Boston Ballet and I've worked with the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater and then I was Mark's assistant about maybe seven years ago now when he made a new ballet on the San Francisco Ballet. Oh, that's great. And had that ballet been wanted, you know, I'm, I'm sort of the keeper of that one. I'm the only mm. one that was part of that process. I mean, theoretically, someone could look at the video and teach it, but... Mm-hmm. What ballet was that? It's a piece called Bow, B-E-A-U-X, because it's for nine men. Oh, okay. And I got to re-rehearse them. SFB, San Francisco Ballet, came and performed at Lincoln Center a f- couple summers ago. Mm-hmm. And then this other piece of Mark's called Maelstrom, which I set on the Boston Ballet. SFB was performing in Paris a few years ago, and I came out to teach some students, like international ballet students, sections of that dance as like mm. a rep class for a week mm. because it was in conjunction with this festival that SFB was in. So, so it's all kind of inter... I, and it's interesting that you know I was never a ballet dancer, but I'm I teach I, I'm a ballet professor now. I teach ballet, and it's um, something I've studied my whole adult life. So it's fun to go work with, and you know, and actually one of the pieces I'm making right now I'm calling a ballet. So I'll get to that when we when you start talking about my current work. Yes. There's one of the pieces is mining the the ballet lexicon so that's sort of my was my starting point yeah you can transition into that sure and talk about that sure if you want so tell us about that work uh that you're developing in it is that part of your collaboration with eve Eve with eve yeah okay so the whole evening is called can i have it without begging which is kind of a a slightly provocative yeah um sort of title but it's the name of one of the pieces of music of hers that we're using and um, Eve and I actually know each other from back in L.A. in junior high school, but we weren't really friends. She was a couple years older than me, and she was just a cool girl who sang, and she went on to go to Princeton, and she's an award-winning composer now. And I sort of followed her peripherally and through some other people. You know, I kind of knew that she was part of the contemporary music, new music scene in, in New York, but also getting commissions all over the place. Her name would pop up in the newspaper all the time. So we have this interesting L.A. history together. So there's certain things that we can talk about that people who aren't from the West Coast, you know, don't connect with in the same way. But she's been writing the, this series of pieces um, since the 80s that are responses to a 14th century composer's work. And they're all about desire and love and lust hmm. and other forms of heterosexual, in, like, relationship um and they're beautiful french poems that she either translates some of them some of the pieces of music she's written have text to them but most of them don't they're just musical responses and one of them is called can i have it without begging and it's this dialogue that's one of the pieces that she wrote just a few years ago anyway that's one of that's where sort of this the one of the reasons we took that title is we just thought it encompassed the whole idea of of women wanting something from men wanting love and stability and you know can I have that without asking for it it's kind of an interesting 
you know, part of it, but it's, it's, mu- it's much more complicated than that. So, so that's this series of, of pieces of music that I've put together for, to make this ballet. And I did the research for it when I was um, a fellow at the Center for Ballet and the Arts this past fall. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was really, really great to be there for six weeks. And I think it came out of the, the idea that I was teaching so much ballet. that I was sort of living, and I was teaching at Gibney. I was teaching an open class every Friday at Gibney for the last four years. I just took a hiatus from that while I'm working on this project. But And then I was teaching it at Sarah Lawrence. I was teaching it at Connecticut College for a year. And I found that all of a sudden I was... You know, when you teach a ballet class, you're you're choreographing every time you teach a ballet class. You're taking this vocabulary, and you're not making up a new dance. You're you're kind of it's like a recipe where you say, well, what if I add like half a cup of that and mm-hmm. a sprinkle of this and a little more of that, and so that became kind of a, a curious place for me to start a choreographic process. Like, well, what if I look at some of these things that I've? Well, sometimes I go to a show and I go, oh, that's just like a classroom phrase. I thought, well, what if I did think, let me start with classroom phrases and see where they take me. And then I had another interest in the fact that the dancers I'm working with all have studied ballet through their professional lives and even younger lives with all sorts of interesting history and baggage about ballet in their bodies. Like, you know, whether it's about body image or bad experiences, good experiences, they loved it, you know, like like they did the Nutcracker f- from when they were four years, they were a mouse, and then they went on to be, you know, whatever, or none of those things, or it was just something they were forced to take in college, or, they, you know, so there's all these different histories of how, and, and for me, and they're all really technical dancers, and it was great to kind of say, let's just look at ballet in our bodies and see what comes out of that, and we're doing it barefoot. It's not a slipper dance, it's not a point piece it's not so that's kind of how that came about and I started playing with a couple pieces of this of, of Eve's music and that's when this idea kind of generated between Eve and I to start expanding and she said well what she's never played in concert all those Guillaume de Machaut pieces in a row and this was an opportunity for her to do it as a suite so the whole show is live music there's five musicians and there's a chorus which is young kids from the Young People's Chorus of New York City, which is this incredible group that, um, that's a subsidized program. They audition kids and they learn to sing and they, you know, it's, it's, I'm learning more about it as, as I go. I haven't met the, the young singers yet, but Eve has worked with them. So that was this idea that what if we use one of the pieces that's in this cycle that, that they already know or some of them have sung. Um, so throughout the evening, Can I Have It Without Begging, there's actually three episodes where, where these young people sing. So there's this ballet piece, and then there's a completely other group piece that's called Play Like a Girl. That's really the f- music of Eve's that I first started to use back just after I, w- I went to grad school. I went to grad school in 2013. I went back to school. Where did you go? I went to Sarah Lawrence College. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got my MFA there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had been teaching at SUNY Purchase for 14 years and was feeling like I needed to bust out a little bit and figure out what I wanted to do. And I knew that I wasn't going to switch careers, but I also knew that I was on kind of a narrow track in terms of my teaching and I knew I wanted to make work and I didn't know how to go about it. And I could have just quit my job and started making dances, but I thought, what if I go to school? Like, what if I give myself a a construct? A framework for that. School does give you that opportunity. It's almost like you get to step back and breathe and create all kinds of webs of constructs. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, and and you're and you're held accountable for these things you are interested in doing. And and I had mentorship there with Sarah Rudner, who is this famous, famous, fabulous person who never had met me, and I'd never met her. So there was this great kind of. Uh, subjectivity that she had you know like you know or no, not subject the opposite objectivity mm. <laughs> like she didn't know me she knew kind of that I had that I danced with Mark and I'd had this history as a teacher and these other things but um, she didn't sort of make assumptions about what I could do or couldn't do so that was kind of great and she pushed me really hard which is hard when you're 50 years old to all of a sudden be a full-time student 
But that's when I was in grad school is when I started listening to Eve's music in earnest, you know, so I, I, because I was looking for music to use and I was fairly committed to the idea when I was in grad school of of using female composers. And that's when she kind of came back on my radar. I hadn't been hanging out with her or anything. It was just, and then I called her and I said, I'm making this piece in graduate school and remember me and, you know, could I get the rights to it? What do I have to give you? And she said, oh, just you're in grad school. Just go ahead and put some money in my, <laughs> donate money to my website or something like this. And and then that's the relationship began, you know. And then she asked me to perform with her in something that was a play like a girl related thing. And then that bloomed from there. So, and then we just kept talking about, wouldn't it be fun to do a show of my choreography and your music? And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've been talking about it for a few years and it's just bloomed into something big now yeah no i i love uh how you describe the title and sort of the theme of the title definitely something that i relate to and i think a lot of people probably do um i'm curious is that a through line throughout the evening with all five pieces is it something sort of thematically um, related to yes and no possibly? actually just today in the studio i was working with how many of the dancers six of the dancers today and we realized that in we were working on one of the play like a girl sequences which which is really these pieces of music Eve wrote these very short variations on one idea and she's written hundreds of them and they're almost all for keyboard variation toy piano harpsichord piano synthesizer vibraphone you know a bunch of different things that have to do with keys and she sort of wrote the initial piece thinking of the time you know, in all of our lives when we were at our most self-assured, which is like pre-puberty, like when we were kids, but old enough kids to like be independent, whether that was being independent in a like go out by yourself and do things in the world or just be alone in your room feeling really good about yourself, you know, doing something you really like to do. And then all of a sudden this thing kicks in, which is hormones and people looking at you and you're being self-conscious about how you look and what you feel about yourself and so she wrote these pieces feeling like they were like these little captures of the self-assured and that's why it's called play like a girl it's about the girl the girlitude she calls it the girliness not behaving like a girl but feeling powerful like in that moment and today we realized that one of the things that shifts it is feeling desirable or or not desirable and the other ballet is kind of about adult desire and and we realize that the one we're dealing with even though they're adults dancing they're not pretending to be children or dancing like children we're just trying to mine these these physical sensations of self-assuredness that we had when we were young but we realize that the shift happens when all of a sudden you're concerned about the desirability of yourself, which can then get you into trouble. And today, you know, we were working on today, like I had a, a, I have a memory of being pulled into a bathroom by some boys when I was in about fourth grade, right? It sounds kind of awful, but I got picked to be pulled into the bathroom. Like it's all of a sudden an attention, like it's how much attention do you want and how does that attention how can it run amok and put you in a bad situation? Absolutely. And in this case, it wasn't, you know, it's, you know, and back in my generation, it may not be the same for you. You can let me know. But when a boy, like, pulled your hair, a teacher usually said, oh, it's okay. He likes you. Like, I'm serious. And this is how I grew up, which is like, like a behavior that was the boys are like that. And we're, re- you know, we're understanding this more deeply now than ever. But when I was a, a girl, you could behave that way. You picked on someone if you had a crush on them. You know, and, and, and if you went and complained that so-and-so was putting a pencil down the back of your dress in class, and they would say, oh, well, you know he likes you. Lucky you. Lucky Some you. You're being, you're being paid attention to you. Boy likes you. Right, yeah. so being pulled Ugh. into the bathroom. So <laughs> we were playing with this sort of the rigor and vigor of this, I mean, not with the narrative, like it's not, you're not going to watch the dance and say, oh, that's, there's someone being pulled into a bathroom. Like, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. what you're going to yeah, see. It's not literal. No, mm-hmm. it's not literal. Mm-hmm. But then we, but we realized the aha moment was what's connecting the whole show, coming back to your question, has to do with desirability and longing and desire on these mm. two bookends. Mm. You know, so, so that was 
that just happened today that we I've kind of known it as a thread, but we've, I was thinking of these dances as kind of separate entities with the same people in them. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of it is a solo for me that's about getting old. With ah. some of the same, same some of the same thing, some of the same themes in mind, which is you know when you reach a certain age, if you've been in a profession particularly where you're on stage all the time, and you know when I danced with Mark. people would come up to me as if they knew me. It's not like I was famous or anything, but it's, you know, people have, you watch people on stage and you feel like you're watching someone on a movie. You have an intimacy with them because you're watching every move they make. And then you go up to them afterwards and they're like, thank you, you know, I don't know you, you know, who are you? And you're like, but I know you because you've just, they've just generously given of themselves and and maybe in a very intimate way while performing. So... When you're older, you lose that, a little bit of that framework. Like people don't, you know, you come become, and, and I'm, you know, and I'm a pretty self-assured person, but it's like you do become a little more invisible than when you, you're you a younger person. And I don't think it's a gender-specific thing. I really just think it's a it's an aging thing. That's interesting. Yeah. I never have heard that said so explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right because there I mean, for various reasons, there could be ageism in general, but that's interesting. That yeah, but it's it's really what you and I don't feel that I exude any less vivaciousness charm. or self charm, whatever it is. I don't know, you know. But I also feel like I don't need as much attention as I needed when when I was in my twenties and thirties, and you know, and that and that's also that's just passage of time. That sounds great. And selfish. It does. It seems great, but you miss it. It's a little bit of. It, there's a little bit of grieving for that. There's a little bit of grieving for it. And I'm not talking like you know that I need people to pay attention to me all the time. But it mm-hmm. is. Right. A, it's an interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting transition. And so I'm observing that, and I'm. That's what I'm working on, on with this solo, hmm. which is and because Eve's Eve's just a few years older than me, and so, we talk about that a lot. You know, and how it's it is there's a certain relief and I'm, you know, and I've been married for a long time. So it's not like it's like there's nothing really to do with one's personal love life. It has to do with just a a general feeling about oneself in the world. Absolutely. You know, and because I am still performing and I am putting myself out in a fairly vulnerable place with people watching me. It's an interesting inner dialogue. Yeah, I've actually heard I heard another podcast recently um, in which the guests talked about pretty much the same thing oh really with more grieving I think um but did mention that there's some relief in maybe feeling stared at less or like less like you're kind of trying to perform like being pretty or whatever it is in public 100 percent I don't know like getting that but I hear that I have male friends who talked about it too like oh thank goodness I don't have to put out in the same way See, that's funny to me because I feel like there is still so much more pressure on a, a woman to look a certain way and to exude desirability than there is on men and you even see it as men age they still successfully like form romantic relationships with women who are sometimes much younger it's like there's so much a stigma it it seems to me absolutely i just was reading something about that the other day that had to do with you know like that guys age men generally age differently than women do too which is just fact and that in our culture i won't say me or you but in our culture you admire the aging male you know how they look you know a little gray a little whatever Mm -hmm. a little this you know Mm -hmm. and the the aging woman Mm -hmm. you're trying to like everything's like what are we doing to help the aging woman like all the creams and things like male products don't say anything about defying age totally yeah no exfoliating that's maybe that what they say but a woman's cream says age defying which is like aged and you know what what does that mean (laughs) i know luckily exactly but that's i know exactly (laughs) i really hope this is me probably being naive more than anything else but i really hope that that is changing in a mainstream way like for example in the super bowl like j-lo and shakira performing and being so graceful and fabulous and i just i hope it's changing for women that it, you know, we're not trying to change ourselves so much, but we're coming into our grace and fabulosity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's actually an example of what I would take as the pessimist side, <laughs> because mm-hmm. even if they are old, they don't look it. And I feel like that's sort of where we all want to be. Like, oh, when I'm there, like, how old right. is J Lo? Well, she's, she's fifty. Fifty. She's okay, 50. so I want to look like that when I'm fifty, but I'm not going to. Well, Most of us but, aren't going but there's to. some some great if you read all the follow up articles because there's been all sorts of interesting push and pull, and some of it's related to 
cultural dance forms too. Like that's that's a really great thing to read those ones. You know, if you like Shakira quoted all these different Middle Eastern dance forms because she's Leban half Lebanese and she's oh, cool. from yeah and she's from Colombia and she's all these things and J Lo's from Puerto Rico and there were the people who are in Latin dance culture savvy were posting things online about you know you're you're saying there was too much hoochie coo or you know because people were critical like some yeah. people thought it wasn't family friendly oh. and I say look at the t- the cheerleaders exactly yeah mm-hmm. you know it's sort of hypocritical you know like is family is people sh- bashing their heads and getting con- you know like well, brain damage is that uh, family friendly like, like we can talk about football I don't want to talk about football that's good yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I'm not the right podcast for bubble so I never saw any of the backlash oh there's been heard. oh there's tons yeah. and and there's even oh. it pushes into the the thing of that most of the backlash was from mothers and middle-aged women. white wim- white white women. Yeah, who dressed their kids. Right, in who were like saying, "I my kids, my kids and I." Risque. Exactly. So there's yeah. So there's there's. I mean, it it's a many tentacled thing. Yeah. yeah. But getting back to what you were saying about, I would love to look like that, but I never will. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It also it's like they're they're professionals. They're celebrities. Mm-hmm. They have. Money coach trainers and mm-hmm. massage therapists and all that you know, around the cl- I mean there's that's an industry industry thing there's a reason why and they're also really 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 good at what they do yeah. so to say that's not what I wanted to watch in the 15 minutes in the middle of my Super Bowl is like oh come on like, yeah, that's totally. what they do and that's what they they're professionals doing fabulously what they do you know and I don't have the same infrastructure around me to you know <laughs> I'm not J, you know, I don't want, really want to be J-Lo, but it's, but it's, it's interesting to be my age and be dancing and try to keeping myself organized in a, in a fitness way, in a physical health way, you know. So she's inspired. I mean, so that is inspiring to me. And Shakira's 40 something. 43, old. I yeah. think. Yeah. So, yeah. so power to them. That's fabulous. Yeah. What I really love about your process is how you really let things or let the themes come about organically mm-hmm. in this piece. And it sounds like, um, I mean, there's all kinds of similarities and connections to be made between the pieces, but it seems to me there's a really nice connection between the self-assuredness that a younger girl has and the self-assuredness you have as you age. And um, maybe you're returning back to <laughs> that youth and self-assuredness in a way when you're not as concerned about all these other little things. Right. Yeah, that's possible. The cool thing about making work is that you walk into the studio every day and you don't know the connections you're going to make you know you can't however much you plan for the day okay I have these dancers today I'm going to work on this section or this part of the music that I you know haven't touched yet or whatever but once it gets going and you have people in the room that are as cool and fabulous as and responsive as the dancers I'm working with are are, they're willing to do anything (laughs) which is great and so you never know where it's going to go or that like I said the you know was it was one of the guy the one male identifying person who was in the room today who was the one that made the desirability connection between the thing we were playing with today and this other thing we've been working on so that's the collaborative part that's you know that's the part where it is organic but I also don't I don't anticipate what's going to happen Mm-hmm. in terms of understanding the connections that I'm making. And, you know, Eve sees the music, you know, it's all her catalog. So there's a natural connection to the evening that it's all music by one composer. And it's the dancers are threaded throughout. And then I dance both it twice. I dance in this solo at the beginning and I or in the middle, and then I dance in a duet at the beginning with one of the younger dancers, which is really great to do. You know, she's 30-something, so she's... 20 something years older than me younger than me and that's that's how I'm setting up the evening is me dancing with someone much younger than me so maybe that's I just made that connect maybe that is the connect that is the connection but that's the in and then there's these young singers that appear every now and again Mm -hmm. to kind of make a landscape that's about youth and I don't know I'm figuring it all out right now (laughs) (laughs) you're helping me figure it all out (laughs) I mean the hardest thing about you know and Helene can speak to this is that is or or nod her head whatever in the corner is that you have to describe it all before you've made it which is the dilemma yeah you learn a little bit about that in in grad school that's kind of a thing you learn to do when you're writing about your work but in order to get funding right in order to to get funding and you have to make up something that's like could be total bs later like you don't know 
if that's really what you want to make. And I was, you know, and, and my press release, I tweaked it four times and said, actually, this is not how I'm describing it anymore. It's like this now. Or I had to write something about it for another thing. And then I had to double back and say, can we change the thing? Because now I don't really like the way this sits. Because some of it sounds, it feels like it sounds, you know, I have a Kickstarter campaign going right now. And we filmed a little promo video for it last summer. Because my, my concert was originally going to be in the fall and had to be changed. And the things I was saying then are not really the right things. And so we had to do a lot of editing to figure out how to like just grab the right few words. And so there's actually not a lot of description in my kind of um, narr- you know, narrating of the video. That's interesting. I did watch that video leading up to this interview. Uh-huh. So that sort of fascinates me about your process and how it things do come about over time. Do you start perhaps with an idea or with task-oriented requests for your dancers and then over time do you sort of let the choreography and ideas sit or how does it sort of morph over time? I, I think that's that's right. I really don't walk into the room knowing what I want to do necessarily. And even though I knew that these these pieces would be scored with this mus- these pieces of music... I often have the music in mind and don't use it. We make up material, movement material, without the music altogether, which is the antithesis of Mark Morris's approach. Mm-hmm. And there's possible pushback. Right, like there's, he's, yeah, he's because he, for he, he holds the score in his hand. Mm-hmm. And you make up the dance measure by measure with a rehearsal pianist. And there's no other way that he does it. He doesn't say, let's play around with turns right now. Let's see what comes up. No, it's like, it's this, it's that. And it's highly structured, which is a really cool way to work. And as a dancer, exciting. And he was really, really fast. Like he would, you know, you had to really stay alert. And whether whether I just decided I didn't want to make a dance that way, because I've made, I've made dances that way, where I find the piece of music first that I'm really interested in working with. And I analyze the piece of music and I, I write down all the structure or I, I read music a little bit so or I get the score and I look at it. But I feel like graduate school kind of helped me with that too because Sarah Rudner, going back to Sarah, she said, you need to just be alone in the studio moving. Don't improvise to music. Don't put music on at all. You need to find out what your personal practice is, like what it is that your movement interests are not visual, not what you like to see, but what you like to do. And that took me a while to do. It was very scary. <laughs> it was super scary. But so now I, I, I'll have a concept. Like today we were working on this bathroom dance, what we're calling the bathroom dance, the pushing around dance. And we'd done a little bit of work on it before, and we'd videotaped it and looked back at a couple of these little studies. And I just kept, we just kept building on it, adding on to it. And then I had the piece of music that's supposed to go with it. And we said, let's see how, where it sits. And is it ever hard then to match the two? No, no, not at all. Because there's no rhyme or reason to how music and dancing go together. Unless you're, you know, if you're really doing something that's like beat for beat, dance, you know. But but you could take a dance and put it to a different piece of music and and it could be fabulous and you won't even know in a way it's like you're tapping into chance elements yeah a little bit yeah seeing how different music structures yeah i mean i like i said i have the music in the back of my head i knew what piece of music was going to be because we've decided already we know that this was this going to be for this section eve has written this one new play like a girl variation that has a certain quality that she wanted to, you know, we, there's eight of these variations. They're each three minutes long. And she wanted to write a new one, knowing that this was the concept I had, which was this being pulled and pushed around in, by somebody who maybe you like that they're doing it, maybe you don't like that they're doing it. Maybe you're pushing back. You know, we, those are the kind of ideas. So she wrote a new thing, and I saved it, and I didn't play it for the dancers. I said, let's make something up, and then today we put the music on, and it was exciting. And then we listened again, and we said, what if we wait until we hear this for this to happen? You know, so we worked on it that way. And then there's other sections of it that are completely counted, where we've counted each note in the dance. So we've been working both ways. It's not just one or the other. Yeah, I really like that. And as for the aesthetic and feel of the dance, you mentioned that 
in grad school, one of your mentors asked you to really like feel the movement that you're interested in. How has that influenced the piece aesthetics? And I guess where where would you describe your movement is today? And how are the dancers that you're choreographing, I guess, bringing that to light? I haven't had anybody describe my my movement. We joke around and we say, oh, here's the modern dance move, you know, or here's the, you know, when you're making up stuff, you give things names that are silly to make you remember, to make you remember them. But I would say some things are, are really form or 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 kind of um, sculptural, you know, the, like I'm really looking at the shapes of the body and the architecture of the body and how it moves in space and other things are more, are, I, I tend to, I tend to not go toward things that are sensory, like I don't really explore in my work the idea of someone having an experience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I will make up something that's quite architectural in the body and then ask them to layer on something dynamically like could you do it while feeling more this way or could you do it while and certainly in the piece that's all based on ballet material we say there's like a thousand arabesques in this work. And I find that so interesting too that over time you've become so interested in ballet technique and now you're teaching so much of it, and that is what inspired some of the structure of this piece. How do you come into some of this ballet movement, or how do you strike a balance between letting the dancers feel something, like you said, you layer things on it, but also keeping some of this ballet structure? Well, it's ba- if you look at it, they're ballet steps. There's nothing unrecognizable in that, in that piece. I've given each dancer, and this is inter- this is another interesting thing to me, is the agency of the individual dancer. Like, I don't need them all to look like one another. It's way more interesting to me to see dancing bodies on stage that are that are individualized. You know, that that look like themselves. I mean, I it's really structured, but I but I I think one of the things that was interesting to me was because I was looking at desire and sort of passion in particularly in sort of um, like mid 20th century ballet. So we were looking at not so much the films, but like still photos of Kenneth McMillan's Romeo and Juliet and the idea of like the the hyper romantic pas de deux, you know, so not just the genteel like Giselle Swan Lake kind of pas de deux, but, but when it became more, neoclassical I suppose and and hyper dramatic that balcony scene that you've probably seen versions of and if you've ever seen the turning point you know which was this like seminal thing for me as a teenager to, to see this in the 70s to see this movie with and see Barishnikov in a movie like was all of a sudden a movie star yeah. even though he couldn't speak English at that point but the ballerina Leslie Brown is in the studio doing rehearsing that pas de deux the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet and Misha's watching her and sort of longing for her. And she's really longing for him, even though she's dancing with some other guy. And then segue into the, Misha and, the, and Leslie Brown in bed together. To me, as, an, as a teenager, that was like, you know, oh, my God, like ballet leads to sex. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, you know, it's so passionate on stage. And then I, you know, so I was looking at these, the sort of faux passion. It's like this clutching and, you know, like breast pumping kind of thing but with fully pointed feet in a back tendu like you're still in these shapes it's not like contemporary dance where you become more of a regular person like you're still in the form you're still in the ballet form I thought what if we just do all the clutching part with none of the pointed feet none of the form yeah interesting so we started there and then we went back in and made these phrases up that that were these big long ballet like grand allegros that got interrupted by people passionately embracing each other so that's in the dance still there's some version of that we're still doing but then we took out any facial expressions that you would have when you were like passionately clutching someone so we kept the like like the hyper physical tension of it but without the face the acting without part. any without the russian acting influence <laughs> yeah well just without the without the acting it's not even russian it's like it's it kind of really like that's like british like faces. it's sort of yeah like royal but like nureyev and margot fontaine like all these couples like that was a thing like the ballet couples were so important when i was a kid so the f- ballet form is there but we're looking at these kind of heightened emotional constructs that that 
lead you to perform ballet in a different way. And then these are like modern dancers performing ballet like that. So it's really interesting. And we don't, we haven't quite gotten there yet. We still have six weeks to figure it out. But the whole piece, the whole evening, in fact, ends with a, like a duet where those things are kind of then pulled apart and distilled. And it's about like touching tiny parts of each other, fingers and oh. shoulders, and becomes like a more delicate thing without all the passion the passion removed but then there's still this relationship and did you find yourself exploring this pulling the thread and just sort of following your curiosity with these uh, 20th century ballets and the passion and hyper romanticism or um, do you kind of feel like there's I mean do you feel that there's something false in those scenes that you're no no if anything it's like it's very moving to me like Mm -hmm. I was always really moved by it and I didn't I mean, this was when we were at Center for Ballet and the Arts. Like, it just felt like it was, like, here I am at this sort of ballet research center. Like, it would be really fun just to dive into some of these things. And within a day, we weren't worrying about them anymore. Like, that was really just a launching place. I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to reconstruct them and then deconstruct them. I mean, I wasn't going through a long process of actually learning that material. One other example is that we... I've always wondered about the, and William Forsyth made this like a motif, like the back arm, like when a man is partnering a woman, like he does something to her and then he goes, he puts his <laughs> arm up behind him and there's some kind of gesture like with a his hand. Wrist it's flick. like a tail or it's like a, yeah, it felt to me like a peacock tail or something. And what's it there for? You know, and I started asking around. I did a little survey. It's like, well, I it continues the, asking. <laughs> well, it continues the, uh, the line. Of what? Like, you know, and then, and then if you look at pictures like that in balancing work, too, you know, Majorly there's balancing. something happening and then there's whoosh, but there's this thing and maybe the woman has it, too. So you have like these mm-hmm. two endpoints. Yeah. So we took Diagonal that apart arms. a little bit. Like, what if you did the thing and then you always added it afterwards instead of it going through whatever the action was so that you know we I, I just use these little ideas as launching points, like sort ah. of like what if we take this ballet construct and then mm-hmm. flip it around a little bit. Yeah. And then now when you like watch that in my dance, you probably wouldn't know that that's what was had happened, but that's kind of where we how we got where we got. It was that's part of the choreography. It was part of it was process. part of the process. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Interesting. It was part I of the research, that. part of the studying part of it. And also just so I could walk in the studio with an idea like what about this? You know, you have to start from somewhere. Really and then to it. make it interactive because I'm sort of I think I'm, I'm fairly, again, because I worked with someone, well, I worked with Oha and I worked with Mark. I've worked with people that are really bossy, you know, who are really, really, like, in charge of the room. And even though you feel like you're part of the process, there's always someone really in charge of the room. I've enjoyed, over many, many years, being, like, kind of quelling that a little bit. And even though I'm the choreographer... I just feel it's really good for me not to be the person, only person with the ideas. Like, right. I, like that the ideas are gen. There's more ideas generating from other people. Absolutely. But, but I throw it in, and I make the final kind of decision. But I feel like we're com- arriving at it together. It's yeah. not like. And to me, it just makes sense from the perspective of it inspires you to have more ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's generative for sure. Like it just it it continues. It can it keeps. Yeah, but I I really love a lot of the elements of your process. I don't want to say maybe deconstructing, but parsing out elements of ballet that we take for granted. I would never question, oh, why does the man put his arm up in that diagonal while he's holding the woman? Well, yeah, it's understood, right? Because it's part of the form now. Yes. It it was never part of like the early classical ballet. Like there was, you know, the man was sort of hidden all the time and she was in the front doing what she did. And he would, but then eventually he became more embellished and eventually he started dancing too, you know, which wasn't the case. Back yeah, in the, you know, 19th century or even earlier, you know, unless it was like Louis the Fourteenth, where he was the dancer <laughs> His and the calves women were. were yeah, but it was just him. Really? Like it was the whole show was about him, you know. Like he started it all, you know. But I love that. But his arms were were down here by his sides. They were never over his head. It's like, like Irish that was dancing. vulgar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, was it was baroque vulgar. dancing it, and. And while you're there. parsing out these structured elements of ballet, I also love that you're tapping into ballet is a feeling and 
I love that quote actually from a former interviewee, Jeremy Ned. Ever since he said oh, ballet Jeremy. is I know Jeremy. Oh you he do He was my student at Purchase. That's right, he mm-hmm. was. So he, he said that once and it reminded me th- these are things I think, you know, we all know, but it's nice when someone says something that gives you an aha reminder. Right, like, right. yes, ballet is a feeling and you're tapping into that feeling. Yeah. And also parsing out those feelings and kind of like re combining them with right, steps. Right, exactly. Well, because I, 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 I love ballet, but I've never was a ballet. You know, when I was at Juilliard, I, I came in with a fairly facile body, but no very little ballet training. And they they were desperate to, like, put me in point shoes and teach me ballet repertory, you know, because like, they wanted, they said, oh, here's someone who could get her leg up in the back, you know, like, who could do that? And I just got terrible tendonitis, and I was an understudy in all these ballets where I couldn't perform them because I couldn't dance on point. But I was in the back learning Anthony Tudor ballets and learning Sylphide variations and all these things in my first couple years at Juilliard. And then I just said, you know what? I need to dance barefoot. I'll go to ballet class every day, but stop making me a, trying to make me a ballet dancer. It just wasn't going to happen. But I, you know, Mark Morris's company does a ballet class every day. That's company class, you know. And so for many, many years, he was my ballet teacher. And he's, he's an amazing ballet teacher and has, that's where his, he was a ballet dancer before he became, he was a flamenco dancer as a little kid, then a ballet dancer, and then a modern dancer. Oh, I didn't his, know the flamenco piece. <laughs> yeah, flamenco and actually Balkan folk dance. He oh, was wow. in a Balkan folk ensemble do in when he was in Seattle as a teenager. Whoa. Really read cool. his memoir. His memoir just came out. Oh, cool. You can read his memoir. So ballet is like the funnest thing. And if you don't take it too seriously and don't feel like you have to be a certain kind of dancer doing it, and that's why I love teaching it to contemporary dancers. I try, I love like taking away that, those barnacles of people feeling like they're not, they weren't good enough to really do it. Yeah, the self-loathing. Yeah, the self- can go along with it because it's so hard and then the older you get, it Well, and and, or Mm -hmm. you wanted to be a ballet dancer and you knew you never could be because of the criteria and it just and either you form. moved on from that, and I never wanted to. I just had a pressure on it. You know, it, it wasn't like I wanted to be a ballet dancer. It was just that they were like, "Oh, I bet you could do this if you really worked hard enough." And you could. <laughs> I was like, oh, "You know, I'm 18 already. Like, how do how do I start?" I'm surprised they pushed it that way because that I, to uh, me that, that was just seems physically dangerous. In the 80s. Pretty that was Juilliard in the 80s. They yeah. were crazy there. <laughs> it, really I mean, it was fabulous. Yeah, no, I just I couldn't. I really I literally couldn't do it. But but I was studying all these other things and I was learning. You know fabulous modern dance repertory and playing the castanets and do you know doing Indian dance I was doing all these other things and I just thought that the ballet class that I have to take every day is plenty like I don't have to be in ballet repertoire but so that's why I said I like (laughs) teaching people now I mean my students at Sarah Lawrence that I teach now are not conservatory I mean they're liberal arts students taking ballet for a whole other reason like it's like you know looking at life through the lens of dance you know as opposed to they're not are they not nece- so they're not necessarily even dance majors? There's no such thing as a dance major. There's no such thing as a major at Sarah Lawrence. You don't major in anything. Is it a class they sign up for oh, as yeah. a course? Or yep, is it an it's a course. A- no, after. they have something at Sarah Lawrence that's called a, you're a dance third, which means you do a third of your credits in dance. You could mm. be a theater oh. third. You can be a, mm-hmm. a music third. And you're studying something else. You're a liberal arts student. But what that brings to it is really like smart, inquisitive people who maybe danced a lot when they were young and and but you could also be a dance third at Sarah Lawrence having never danced at all that's great you could be like a sculptor who wants to take dance classes can you just sign up for the class even if you're not a dance third like can anyone take it um you have to do something yes like if you're if you've danced enough like I'm teaching like the lower level right now this semester but I taught the higher level last semester if you've never done ballet, you have to take something called fundamentals. Like they have a grandfathering in kind. Of, yeah, but you can do it as a certain amount of credit course. You don't have to be a dance third. No, that's which great. is interesting. I mean, it's a great it's a great setup for people who want to study. But but at Purchase, you know, you audition to get into that program. That's a really competitive. I mean, the energy in those classes, like or, you know, everybody was. Yeah, I went to SUNY Purchase. You in did two thousand, but only for one year. In two thousand, that was right. Was I? Did I teach you? I never took your class, but I feel like I remember you. Well, that's why I think I yeah. know you. That's why your face is familiar. Yeah. But you didn't have take my class in 2000. I did not. Maybe take that was your when class. I was first starting there. 2000 was when my 
No, you wouldn't. You no. Yeah. Yeah, because I the first thing I taught there was modern partnering, and I was pregnant. I was very pregnant with my second son, and then I went and had that kid, and I came back in the fall and started teaching modern one. By then and I was you gone. were gone. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I was gonna say I feel like I I remember your name. I, I was around, but I was yeah. teaching this one weird class. One class. Yeah, because I had said a Mark Morris piece there when I was still in Mark's company, mm-hmm. and Carol Walker. Yep, Carol Walker. Carol Walker had had hired me to do that, and I'd gotten to know her, and then then I moved up to Westchester, and you know had, had called her and said I'm I'm in the area if you want me to sub, and she said actually I need someone to teach modern partnering. Can you do that? And I said, oh, sure. <laughs> And then Never you, have, but okay. You know, <laughs> I'll do that. Yeah. Wow. Speaking of dance classes, yes. where can people take your class? So right now, I'm not teaching any open classes. Okay. As I mentioned, I was I just finished a long stint at Gibney where I was teaching pro pro level ballet for contemporary dancers on Fridays, but I'm I'm not right now because okay. it was just like tipped the scale of things I was doing right now with this show coming up. Um, I'm also making a piece at Marymount right now mm-hmm. um, and teaching Sarah Lawrence two days a week. So mm-hmm. nowhere right now, unless you unless you enroll at Sarah Lawrence and take and take ballet one this semester, probably next fall, I'll be starting to teach some open classes again in the city. But right now I'm on a little hiatus. I also teach dance for people with Parkinson's disease. Wow. So and I do that throughout the dance for PD program that's based out of Mark, the Mark Morris Dance Center. But I also teach a class um, going on 10 years now. I've had this group of people up in Rye, New York, which that's is near really where I live. Great. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's a whole other. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast. I was going to yeah. say that. That's a whole other interview. <laughs> yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. And really wonderful to do. Yeah. And a great, it, yeah, another great, wonderful thing I feel really grateful to be doing at this stage in my life. Yeah. And the piece that you're making at Marymount is a whole new piece that's not really It's a new piece on the BA students. That's, um, yeah, it's a commission for, for their spring concert. Yeah. I just started it last week. Yeah, yeah which is sort of moment. a challenge to be making a dance when I'm working on this other big show. But they're really great. I have fif- There's 15 people in it. It's a lot. So I've only had two rehearsals so far. So I'm going in there with just trying to have a fresh idea. I mean, there's part of me that would like to just, like, keep working on my dance that I'm <laughs> for my show. I'll just keep working on it with these Marymount people, but I can't do that. So I'm trying to make up something new on them. Right now, it's new early on in the process. I'm just giving them some material to work with and manipulating it and just watch, getting to know them a little bit. So it can be a little personal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Tell us about the process of collaborating with a composer um, and working with live music um, in the pieces you're developing. Well, I live music is really cost prohibitive. So mm-hmm. most dance companies don't perform with live music. Um, and it's, you know, Mark has made it uh, a prerogative for his company. And my friend John Hagenbotham, who has a company now, yeah. you know, I'm sort of the only, like, there are other choreographers that have come out of Mark's company, but, but maybe I'm the next one after John that's sort of pursuing making work right now. And I wanted to take the risk of having a live music show. And, you know, there's a few different different. Part, you know, it's it's super expensive. This is why I'm raising money right now. And also because Eve is has the stature that she has. Like, I have to pay her, too. It's not just that I'm paying the musicians to play her music. I'm paying for the rights to the music and for her collaboration of putting these musicians together. And she's contracted them all. But she's also written some new music for me. And, and the piece that's the solo is the coolest thing because we started working on it together with the musicians in the room. It's almost, she's sort of writing it while I'm working on it. And they're going to be in the space with me, the the four musicians that are playing that piece. So the challenging thing is that you, the visual is that there's people there playing the music and there's dancing going on. You know, I have had friends that say, you know, is the, is are we going to be able to watch the musicians too? You know, like that's a bit, that's a big thing. They're not just in an orchestra pit. They're at, at St. Mark's Church at Dance Space. They're, they're visible and they're actually in the space with me too a little bit. I'm trying to, you know, stage them. I won't say choreograph them, but put them, use them in the space. But the idea that, that it's, it's impossible to do because it costs so much money is sort of sad to me. And so I'm sort of making a little bit of a statement. Maybe the statement is, 
we should be able to do live music shows more often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these kind of collaborations shouldn't be a rarity. It does transform a performance. Yeah. And some people can, you know, pay for one musician or, you know, like at the last show I saw at Dance Space that had live music was, was my friend David Parker did this fantastic show with live music. And it's a beautiful acoustic space. Like the sound there is really great, you know, which is why it was sort of a dream space, you know, to be there. But I got to dance to live music during my whole tenure with Mark and got really spoiled, you know, with the fact that every show you did, the music was a little different because humans were playing it. It was a little faster, it was a little slower, it was not canned. It was, so it heightens your experience as a performer. It, it completely changes how you perform because you don't know what's going to happen. Right. They could drop something. They could sneeze. They could hmm. have a cup of coffee that wires them up before you know like like anything can happen yeah that's they're professionals of course so they're playing the piece as it's written and and we've worked on you know we're going to rehearse together not a lot but we're going to rehearse together a couple times and we have that tech week but the fact is it's like it's a totally different performing experience to perform to live music Mm -hmm. yeah and I'm happy to be able to give that to the dancers that I'm working with because not all of them have some of them have performed with live music but not all of them have and it's really, really, really different than press play. You rehearse, you know exactly where the spaces are, the pauses are, the breaths are. You know, in this, you don't. Which is kind of why I'm rehearsing with it in this kind of looser fashion. Because I'm, I think I'm setting up, yeah. I'm setting up that up. Well, that's um, wonderful. I know a lot of composers and musicians who would probably love to work with dancers. I wonder if there's a way to set up an app or a group uh, or something where they can yeah, <laughs> people are trying to do it i mean sometimes people do it when they're friend with friends yeah, you know um but to take it to that next level up where where everybody's getting paid what they're supposed to be paid yeah. and i mean mu- frankly musicians always get paid more money than dancers and that's something we're all trying to change or at least put out in the ether on the podcast to talk about it is the hour you know the per hour fee for the musicians is higher yeah yep. for sure absolutely um but the dancers also put in more you know like it's a longer process for the dancers it's really different you know so they're not they're not the same thing um but i'm thrilled to be doing a show with live music yeah i don't know if i'll be able to afford it again anytime really really soon mm-hmm. <laughs> unless yeah. you know this has a lot of traction you know as an event and it and you know i mean i would love something else to happen with this particular construct that we've built we'll see even if in in a smaller way well we're glad that you're making it work this time putting it out there thank you setting an example to other artists thank you yeah yeah and i'm paying my dancers well too that's that's my priority oh wow good for you yeah yeah no i'm that's a priority for me too well thank you so much it's been such a pleasure thank you nice to meet you both and thanks for having me to see the piece yeah well, tickets are on sale. All right. Happening. Buy tickets, everyone. Yeah, buy tickets. <laughs> area. Dance Space Project. Community Access is what is the, the umbrella. The that, yeah, the series. Yeah, oh, exactly. okay. Yeah, Dance yeah. Space Project Community, Community Access. Community Access, exactly. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Megan. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks.